um, that's going to change, and it's going to change dramatically. Uh, it's going to take me probably four weeks to get through the first verse. Uh, we are going to be using Jude in a very deliberate study of some very unusual things. Um, some have said, well, Jude has got some bizarre things in there compared to some other scriptures, and, and to some degree that is true. Um, we're going to be looking at some of those things that it references and only it references within the context of our canon of Scripture. And so as we go through the, the book of Jude, um, we're going to be springboarding off of sometimes just a word, as for example today, uh, and sometimes just a phrase or even an idea. And we want to investigate it with some depth and to gain some clarity um, and it's going to take us into a lot of other passages of Scripture, going all the way back into Genesis, and as you saw by our Scripture reading this morning, into Matthew, other portions of Scripture, to help us gain a depth of understanding. Um, we're not going to look for uh, a survey. We are really looking to investigate each thing that is introduced in this book in, in extensively. And so we're going to take sometimes uh, for the first few weeks just a word um, because these words are rich and full of meaning and are important in the development of our theology and sometimes our philosophy of life, which those two things have to be intimately connected, um, whether you acknowledge it or not, they are. And so we are going to be taking a very deliberate look at Jude and uh, as we do so, we are going to maybe spend some weeks almost never in the book other than reading that one or two words. Uh, but we are going to get into it. Before I do so, I do need to introduce the book a little bit. And I recognize my responsibility to do that. We're going to talk a lot more about its purpose and, and period and all of that uh, a little bit later down the road as we get into some of the main thrust of the book. But we want to look at just a, a couple of aspects of the book of Jude uh, to get you started. Uh, we do have a very strong connection, sometimes almost word for word, with Second uh, Peter chapter 2. And in fact, to the point that many want to say, well, uh, one of them copied the other one. Whether it was Jude copying or relying on Peter, or Peter copying or relying on Jude, uh, we find the similarities very strongly. There's also a third thing that could happen is that both of them were drawing from a third source that was familiar to both of them. And so that is, of course, the three options that are available to you. And there are arguments on both all three sides, really, uh, that could be made very easily. And, uh, and we're not going to go into that extensively, but you will find us, because of that comparison, in 2 Peter chapter 2, pretty consistently to get uh, a, a little bit different verbiage of what is being spoken of in Jude. The Jude that we are talking about, his real name, his, his Hebrew name would be Judas. Uh, we don't use Judas because of its affiliation with Judas Iscariot. You don't find Judas being used very often, even in naming of children today, um, because of its connection to Judas Iscariot, which is too bad um, it is a very popular name in Israel, especially going back to the Maccabean period where Judas Maccabeus was the great hero. And uh, we are just getting done with Hanukkah. 
uh, and they have celebrated that, and that was the work of the Maccabees, and uh, to purify the temple there. And so uh, there were many, many individuals named Judas, and in fact, uh, when you go through the list of the disciples, you will find uh, more than one Judas, just as you find more than one James. And I say, well, why do you mention James? Well, because what we know about this Judas is that he is, depending upon whether the, either the brother of or son of, James. Uh, when you go into the, into the Gospels, they will insert the term son of, but here Jude makes it very clear that he is the brother of. Let's read Jude verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. That's all. And so we have an introduction where Jude introduces himself, and we will find that these words are not introduced by translators, but rather given to us by Judas himself, and he describes himself as the brother of James. But we have many James to pick from. Uh, we have James and John, and we can disconnect him from those two because they were brothers and, and uh, they were the sons of Zebedee and this Jude is not, Judas is not uh, related to that James. There is another James in the list of the apostles um, and uh, many want sometimes to associate with, him, with that James. But there is a third James that gives us uh, a strong link to Jude, this Judas, uh, and that is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes ruler of the church in Jerusalem. And again, we'll discuss this a little bit later on, but it is this James that we believe Judas to be the brother of. And you might say, well, wait a minute. All right, if he's the brother of James, and James is the half-brother of Jesus, then Judas is the half-brother of Jesus. Son of, or a son of Mary and Joseph, and you are absolutely correct. But Judas is not interested, just as James very seldom describes himself as a brother of Jesus. They prefer to humiliate themselves rather than associate themselves, and this is important theologically, and we're going to delve into that in a little while, uh, well, in a few weeks, we're going to delve into that as we look into the text before us, but Jude is making a very careful distinction that I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ, not linking himself to his physical relationship to Jesus Christ, but his spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ, which trumps his physical relationship. We're going to talk a lot about that down the road, but today I really want to jump into some of the, of the theology that we want to address here, and to help us understand maybe a little bit of the writing of the book, we find that um, Judas meant to write something else. Um, he wanted to write a lengthy discourse for uh, his readers. We don't really know who his readers originally were. He doesn't describe them there other than how I've already read in verse 1. But we find in verse 3 that he does say, and we're going to again get to this in several weeks, that uh, he wanted to write at length about the salvation that, we sh that he shares with his readers. He just wanted to talk about salvation and, and investigate it and delve into it, something we're going to do at the beginning of his book by looking at several of these very strong salvific words. Um, but then he says, I couldn't write to you 
in this fashion and as I wanted to because I have to write this very hasty letter because of some problems that I just heard, and that is that you have false teachers among you. And so I have to pick up pen, and it says, I found it necessary, instead of writing about our salvation, to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. And we're going to talk a little bit about those men as we get to it, and we're going to talk a lot about false teachers and false prophets and about the work of the demonic, even among God's people. Are the demons trying to influence our theology, our practice? Are they trying to draw us away from Christ, and by what mechanisms? And we're going to be investigating all of that. As I said, we are not going to be rushing through this book, but taking our time and being very deliberate to fully delve into some of these issues. They are critical in our time. Um, this is true, really, of most of the books of the New Testament. They all, but perhaps one, reference false teachers. And it is, in fact, the very force that has them being written. Is, and Jude makes this very clear that the reason this book exists is because of his re necessary reaction to false teachers. So we're going to be addressing that. But to address that, I think it is valuable and worthwhile for us to take some time to put down some roots of good doctrine so that we can have the means to evaluate falsehood. Before we do that, Getting into our book, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. We thank you for the opportunity that it affords us to study, to meditate upon, to know you, to know what you are like and how you function and what you desire for us, what you've done for us, what you will yet do for us. And Lord, we rejoice that you have put out this very precious invitation for us to move from worldly thinking to divine thinking. To move our focus from ourselves and this world to you and that world to come that you have desired us to be a part of. And Lord, as always, we pray your spirit might direct this time, might guard us from error, from opinion, from from worldliness in our thinking, that that might be purged from us. And Lord, also, that you might purge from us error coming from within and among your people and those that claim to be but are not. And so, Lord, we pray that you might help us this morning to oppose um, that which is of Antichrist. And we do praise things in your precious name. Amen. Well, we come to really the first theological term that I want to address. Uh, I, we will get into talking about what it means to be a bondservant, and we're going we're gonna to investigate that. I want to do that in reference to another portion of the book of Jude. Um, but I really want to delve immediately right into some of very difficult material. And to give you a taste of what's coming, 
Um, we are not going to be able to just lay back and just say, well, I always knew that. Uh, I, I certainly hope not. I couldn't, as I have been and continue to do this study. Uh, it took me a lot of work, and you're going to see me come to the pulpit with something very rare that you don't see me with, and that is pages of notes. And that should immediately tell you something, that I'm going to be referencing a lot of different scriptures, that these are somewhat difficult elements um, that are not readily at, in just the one text before us. And so we find that the recipients of this letter, this hastily drawn up letter by Jude, Judas, uh, brother of James, is that he is to the called. And we are going to stop right there and talk about what it means to be called. This is an important term that is used um, by Paul extensively, especially you'll find it in Romans referenced in a lot in the Corinthians. You'll find him using it extensively. Many people go to the Corinthians and want to use it to define this term. But I would like to challenge that Judas and most of our other biblical writers are using it slightly different than how Paul uses it, except for on a few occasions that we will mention either this week or next week, depending on how far I get this morning. But we want to talk about the calling of God. And you might say, well, of course, God calls. And what does that mean? And again, we can use this as a verb. We can use it as a noun, um, as many do, that you're calling, uh, you're, what you are called to. And uh, we're going to discuss it in those frameworks, as uh, Paul does, I'm not going to avoid those, but I really want to focus on how it is used by some of the other authors of Scripture, particularly with Jude's association as one of the apostles following Christ. Um, I would conclude that he, like Peter, are going to draw this idea of being called of God, not so much from the Pauline epistles uh, and that usage, which usually is, is done from a different perspective, but from that which is taught by Christ. And that's why we read from Matthew 20 and 22 this morning. We could also go to chapter 20. And we're going to go back into chapter 22 of Matthew to really investigate what was it being used to represent. Was it used to represent, well, we are the called, and therefore we are the only ones out of all of the world that God has called to salvation. For there are some who use it in that fashion and make an appeal to Paul and says, well, that's what Paul means by this. But I would contend that not only does Paul not mean it that way, nor does anywhere else, but that in fact it means quite the opposite. Instead of saying that it is limited to only certain ones, this term, the way Jesus Christ introduces it in the parable of the wedding feast, uh, makes it very evident that it is used biblically to reference his universal calling of God to all men out of sin into Christ. That once we get to the past tense use of it, the called, it are, is referring to those who have accepted that call, not to a unique individual who are the only ones who received the call. And this is where we get into some theological danger we get into some deep theological, dangerous waters with, 
with life-threatening riptides in it once we start to think that God has only called some. And in Calvinistic model, this is how they use it. And they go to the Pauline passages first instead of to these other passages that I'm going to go to first. We're going to get to the Pauline ones probably next week to discuss. And, and they go to their Pauline first and they make, make that interpretation of that word then bear on the others rather than having the others bear on that. And I prefer to use those used prior and used by Christ to gain an understanding of that um, more difficult usage, I believe, used by Paul. And if you think I'm picking on Paul a little bit, I'm not. His writing is more difficult than the other writers of Scripture. Um, Peter himself said that, didn't he? You know, the things written by Paul are great, they're difficult to understand, and some have twisted them and abused them. And so Peter himself was already recognizing that, that these things are... tough what Paul's dressing um, and so we don't start there and, and get our definitions from there we start where it is easier to understand is clearly dis- described for us and then we bring that to Paul and to books like Romans and 1 Corinthians uh, where this word is going to be used extensively by Paul especially in 1 Corinthians but our Calvinistic I don't even want to call them friends or brothers at this point. I'm so frustrated and so um, disgusted by what they have done with God's word. Um, These Calvinistic teachers have taken this term and said, well, uh, this is the work of God by which he approaches only those who he intends to save with an offer of salvation. It is, if you are familiar with T-U-L-I-P, the tulip, which is an acrostic that's there to try to describe the five fundamental or basic tenets of Calvinism. Um, Calvin didn't ever teach the tulip, I know that, um, but it was his protégés who developed that very soon to try to bring his institutes down to a manageable uh, descriptive form. Uh, One of those, the I, and that is the irresistible grace. That is that once God initiates the work of salvation toward you, you cannot resist it. That is, it is impossible for you to say no. That once God begins that work, that and depending upon where who you want, where they want who you talk to and where they want to put it, whether it's convicting work or calling work, um, whatever it is, um, they would say there's a prior work of God that they referenced to be election, uh, and they, they misuse another term, predestination, to mean predetermination, that God has predetermined who will be saved, who will not be saved. He did not die for those that he did not intend to save, and that he would not convict those, even though the Bible says he convicts the world of sin. The world doesn't mean the world in the Calvinistic mindset and teaching. Um, The world means the world of elect, of the elect. Um, We have modified everything, um, literally the tail wagging the dog. Um, And so we, and I'm simplifying this a lot. And so if you want to get out there, there'll be people that take me to task for this because I'm simplifying it because I'm really not here to teach you Calvinism. I'm here to teach you God's word. But this is a warning. 
Here it is. The first word we really encounter here, and they're already ready to bring guilt upon God for not saving the world. I say, what? Yes, if it is entirely dependent upon God initiating it and you cannot resist him once he initiates it, then it is completely God's fault that anyone is in hell. For it is his fault that he did not initiate it. They will make statements to this degree. Dead is dead and dead men can't respond. Because we are dead in trespasses and sins. Again, taking a term and abusing it, misusing it, out of its context and out of its purpose. It is obvious that God expects responsiveness out of man. And we become spiritual determinists that simply everything ends up being God's will because I can't resist any of the working of his grace toward me and therefore if he wants to save those he wants to save, he must initiate it. He doesn't need me, he doesn't need you. And this is why some of the great missionaries of our age had to leave Calvinist churches and join themselves up with non-Calvinist churches in order to become missionaries. William Carey, the father of modern missions among them. Realizing I'm never going to get out to the mission field. I'm never going to reach any lost people as long as I stay among this group of people who teach this Calvinistic doctrine. And so this is why it is so important that we rightly look at the idea of what is meant by the term called. It does not mean that you are somehow unique out of the world in terms of your invitation to the gospel. Again, when used in the past tense that you are the called, it is not implying that you are the only one that was invited, but that you are one of the ones who responded. And so we refer to ourselves on this side of salvation as we were called. That is not an exclusive term. Not in terms of the primary invitation. So let's go to Matthew 22 and let Christ give us the definition of these things in um, this parable um, that ends with a very powerful declaration he's already made in the book of Matthew. It's already been made once. Now he's going to give a storyline to help you understand what, he's, what he meant by that. Uh, so let's go in uh, Matthew the, the the declaration is verse 14, Matthew twenty-two, fourteen. 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean? Well, it, this wasn't the first time. If you go back two chapters, Matthew 20, we have at the end of, again, another parable, the workers in the vineyard. It says in verse 16, So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen has raised itself up again. And so, twice now, we have its usage. So we come to the parable and we say, well, these are actually the words within the parable of the king uh, within the context of the word called. And the entire parable from beginning to end is all about being called. This is the calling parable. What do we mean by being called? And that word isn't always translated 
the same in the parable. Sometimes it is translated call. Sometimes it is translated invite. They are all formed out of the same root. And so we find um, in verse, well, let's read verse 2. Since I, we didn't get it at the Bible reading earlier on, we'll start in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servant to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. The first thing that we find about the call is that there was an intended recipient. He sent out his servants to call the invited guests. He had a list. And if you want to know what that original list was, you weren't on it, I can guarantee you. You know why? Because you're not Jewish. The original list he's talking about is Israel. That you had to be saved, you had to come to God as a member of Israel, which means that if you weren't born a member of Israel, you had to become a member of Israel, uh, which some did. There were Egyptians that left Egypt with Israel. Um, there, were, there was at least one family, Jericho, right? Joined Israel, Rahab. We have others, of, um, story of Ruth. Uh, joined Israel. So we have these that have joined Israel. That's how they came to God. They had to join Israel, essentially. There were some exceptions, some Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, Joseph's Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, Captain Naaman, uh, among others. But you notice Captain Naaman and others, they always wanted to take the dirt of Israel with <laughs> Can I take some dirt home with me? Because I want to worship the God of Israel. They understood they had to have a connection, a link to Israel to come to God. That was the invited guests. That was the original list, guest list. And so now we have that they, he sent his servants, we'll call them the prophets, uh, those that speak forth the, the desire. And so there was an original list of those who were invited, a calling to the wedding. Now, if it was an irresistible working of God, the next phrase seems Wildly out of place. They were not willing to come. They didn't want to. They didn't want to be guests of the king in his wedding banquet for his son. They didn't want to. You'd think that this verse all by itself would be enough to put a nail in the coffin but sadly, it isn't. They were not willing to come. The reference was to the stiff neck neckedness, not nakedness, but neckedness, the stiff necked neckedness of Israel. That after prophet after prophet, they resisted. They killed them. They disobeyed them. They ignored them. They didn't want what God was offering. They didn't want to be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Son of God. They didn't want to be part of that banquet. So they didn't want to. So he sent out some more servants, telling them, listen, I've got this wonderful dinner. 
Again, tell those who are the invited ones. See, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fatted cattle are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. I have this wonderful blessing for you. This is not drudgery. This is a feast. This is, this is wonder. This is the king's table. Everything is ready. I put out the very best that I have. And this is what God offered Israel the very best, which he offers today, the very best that he has for any who would come. But the original invited guests were Israel and those who would make, go through Israel to come to him. And he says, here they are ready. Just come to the wedding. And look at verse 5. Not only were they unwilling to come, says they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. Those were the nice guys. We're going to do it our way. Uh, we've got stuff we, on our, we got our, our calendar. We got, you know, here's my agenda. Um, here's, here's my, um, what do you guys in your phones, you got your calendars. Here's my schedule. I can't fit you in. No room for God. For his special meal. I got business. I got my farm. I got family things. I, these people had excuses. But notice they used the excuse to make light of. That is, they did not value the invitation. The calling. It was of no value to them. God tried to demonstrate to them how valuable it was. It was valuable because, first of all, don't think that because you're on the guest list that that makes you worthy. Um, I'm, I'm still giving you my grace, but look at how valuable this, this is. This is my son's Wedding, the prince who will one day be your king. This is his wedding. I have prepared everything for your benefit to participate in this. I have more than enough for you. There is room at my table. I have made it for you. Come. And they devalued it. Yeah, I know it says in, in New King James they made light of it, but they devalued it. It wasn't a priority. Eh, maybe if I have time, maybe... Uh, if I don't get a better offer, <laughs> I think we've all experienced that to some degree or another. You know, you invite someone over this, well, I don't know, maybe I'll get a better offer this week. Uh, but I'll definitely put you down as a maybe. Well, thanks a lot. Okay, so you didn't value it. They made light of it. It wasn't worth anything to them. They didn't recognize the extraordinary value of the grace of God, of his love toward them. And those were the good ones. Then in verse 6, we find others responding to the call. and says, the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Not only do we have some who simply ignore the invitation, we have some that devalue the invitation and just are distracted by the things of this world um, and that are more important to them, um, but others that hated the invitation. We have really three layers of disregard for a very powerful invitation of God. And these that hated the invitation 
took the servants, abused them, and killed them. Referring, of course, to the prophets who Jesus Christ is mentioning here. It wasn't enough that you didn't value what I was offering, but you hated the offer. That there were some among you who despised it so deeply that you thought to silence those that were giving it my grace, extending my gracious invitation to you. Now, I don't know about you, but so far I find no evidence of irresistibility. I find that it is completely up to the will of the recipients of the calling, the invitation. It is completely up to the individual. Do you want to just disregard it, extending your will, because you just don't want to? Or perhaps because you devalue what God is offering you, forgiveness of your sins, eternity in his presence. Maybe that's just not worth it. Maybe you're so focused on things of this world that you think going out there and getting uh, cars and money and houses and jobs and stuff of this world is satisfying. Um, that you just don't value what God is offering you. And you're going to encounter people and pray none of you are in that category of those that would hate it and want to work against it. And yet we're going to encounter just such people in the book of Jude who are in the church, who are working against the truth and are enemies of our Lord to the point of willing to want to silence true prophets of God, true speakers, who want to run them out on a rail rather than allow them to speak the truth and allow themselves to come under its conviction. They would rather run off, run the preachers off, the teachers off, those that hold truth. And so we are still dealing with these three responses to God's invitation, none of which, none of which, are positive, let alone irresistible. None showing that they are compelled to come. We come then to the king's response, and the king is angry, furious, it says, filled with rage at wrath. And he's going to raise up an army in before we get to the wedding feast, even though all the critters are lined up and ready for the meal, everything is put in place. The feast could start any time in his wrath before the feast. And eschatologically, this is very important. Before the feast, there is the expression of his wrath. He's not going to have the wedding feast and say, I'm going to remember that and I'm going to come back and get you. No, he interrupts the joyous event to come, to say, I cannot celebrate that while I have wrath in my heart toward these who have willfully rejected me, who have devalued my offer, who have despised my servants and, and abused them and killed them. No, I am going to express my wrath first, then we will have the wedding supper of the Lamb. And there will be seven years of the exercise of God's wrath that will come first before there will be a wedding feast. 
when we will engage in this. And so the king sends out his armies and he destroys them. He burns their city. But I want you to notice that the ones that he destroys is, are the murderers, the ones who detest it. And you might say, well, what about those that just didn't want to go, the ones that were distracted? Um, well, there are some other parables about those. A few of them might gotten into the kingdom. A parable of the wheat and the tares, right? What does one of them say? They were unfruitful. They were choked out by the cares of this world. But others were destroyed as soon as the sun rose up. I don't know about you, but I really don't want to be in that questionable category of not knowing. Could I sneak in by one of those as one of those unfruitful Christians that's just choked out by the cares of this world? When I have a plant that I plant in my garden expecting something, fruit from it, and it doesn't produce fruit, you know what I do? I rip it out like a weed. I rip it out. Because why give it any more nutrients? Why water it when it produces nothing? And Christ, when he comes to the fig tree without it, curses it and it's dead. I think there's ample evidence that you don't want to be in that category. I'm not sure. So he's going to go and destroy them. And then, verse 8, we come back to the word kaleo in Greek. And he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited, were called, were not worthy. Well, you can never be worthy of God's grace. So what is he saying? Their response prevented them from participating. They could not receive it because they didn't respond as they should to the calling of God. Verse 9, therefore, go into the highways as many as you find. Again, a phrase, I don't know how you can make a limiting aspect to this phrase. As many as you find, invite to the wedding. There is nothing here that describes any limitation on the invitation, the calling that we go out and we invite, we call anyone we find, as many as you find. There is ample for everyone at the table, feast table of God. Call them to the wedding. It says invite. Word there, same thing. Call that, oh, call them to the wedding. Invite them. And we find all these joyous people who are representing Presenting the Gentiles who say, we get to come into the, we get to, we get to go into the wedding feast of the Son of God? We do? You're inviting me? Yep, we're inviting everyone. Even the likes of you. From the highways, from the byways, doesn't matter your station in life. It doesn't matter whether you're young, old, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, male, female, doesn't matter any of that. You are invited to the wedding feast. Do you find anything of exclusion in this? I will agree that it began with a wedding list, a guest list that said, Israel, through Israel only. I agree, it started. But God's 
fullest plan now is to say, go out and as many as you can find. Search them out. Look for those people. Find them and invite them if they didn't know they were invited, if they've never been invited before. Tell them about the wonderful grace of God and recognize that they aren't worthy and make sure they know that God in his grace wants to forgive them of their sin, that they would never have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb because their sin prevents them from being qualified to be in his presence. Invite them. The servants go out and they do their job. They go to the highways. They gather together all whom they found. Bad, good, didn't matter your background. You're invited. Isn't that wonderful? I love bad and good. Don't just go after the good people. Go after some of those bad ones that you don't like, that look nasty and gnarly and smell bad and act bad and speak bad. Go after some of them. It's okay. They're all invited. They're all invited. And the wedding was filled with guests. Many, many came in. And when you go through the book of Acts, one of the things you're going to find about Israel, the Jews, is that they were full of envy because of the popularity of the apostles' invitation to the Gentiles come to Christ. For they filled up the wedding hall. They filled up the wedding with Gentiles. And Israel was largely excluded by their own choice. Not all Israel, all of the disciples, all of the apostles were Israel. They went in all the synagogues. There were many of Israel that were saved. But as a nation, as a national entity, they were rejected. Because they rejected God to the point of infuriating him. And I would contend today, you keep rejecting God. We're going to close this to this message with a hymn, God's Final Call. Is this God's final call? Is this the last time he's going to let you reject him before he just says, you're done, I'm, I'm ready to pour my wrath on you? Fact is, there was a point of rejection that Jesus described as he approached Jerusalem, 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 how I have longed to gather you like chicks under my wings, but you didn't want me and now you're going to be destroyed. At some point, God's wrath necessitates a punishment for rejecting his offer. Because the offer goes out to all, as many as you can find. But is being called enough? And this is what I want to be, help you delineate the difference between being among the called and being a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ. These are not identical Please do not confuse that when Jude says to the called, that he is necessarily intimating that if you are called, you are equal to saved. You are among the followers of Jesus Christ. If that were the case, the warnings, both 
in Jude and many other books, Hebrews particularly, James also, um, are irrelevant. Um, if you're the called and therefore you are, the, in a couple of words later you're going to see that we are going to be preserved, um, what's to worry about? The evidence is that you are the called, you have made a response, but now we need to talk about, is it the right response? What? You have to have the right response? Isn't any positive response to God sufficient? No. And this is a bit frightening, frankly. This last part of this parable is very disconcerting. Should be to all of us. It challenges us. Have I responded to God rightly that I may be called not only the called, but children of God, followers of Jesus Christ. Am I the one who am I one of the ones who has responded sufficiently, properly, to gain entrance into the heavenly realm, the meal, the feast? In the excitement of bringing people to the wedding, the servants went out there and just gathered people. Come on, come on, come on, let's go. There's a great meal over here. People are like, all right, a great meal in there. Uh, but it's a wedding feast, and it's a royal wedding feast. And I don't think the servants were remiss in communicating that. Come on, we have a royal wedding feast. We are going to come before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It's his son's wedding feast. We want to participate. He has opened the invitation to everyone, not just the guest list, but to as many as we can find. We found you. Come on in. Great. Any positive response must be good because here you're in the banquet hall. But here comes the king. And he's looking over the guests. And there's something amiss. Something is wrong. There's a guest that isn't properly clothed. I thought any positive response to God is sufficient. I believe in God. Well, the Bible tells the demons believe in God and are afraid of him, but they're still demons. So no, not every positive response to God is a saving response. There are those seeds that fall into the rocky soil, sprout up a positive response. There it is, boom, a plant. Hallelujah, a seed took hold in this rocky soil, and then as soon as sun came up, it died off. It was gone. Poof. You see, not every positive response gets you into the kingdom of God. You can say you believe. You can get baptized. You can say the right things, pray the right prayers, and it still may not be putting you in the right apparel for the kingdom of God. He says, why don't you have wedding garments on. Where are your wedding garments? And the man had no answer. That is, 
he was, wasn't speechless because he didn't understand the question. He was speechless because he recognized, I didn't consider that in my response. That I have to do this with all of my heart, all my soul, all my strength. I have to clothe myself in righteousness to be among the Lord. I have to take off those old garments and put on those new garments that Paul talks about in Corinthians, that that's part of the the right positive response to the calling. There are other positive responses, and people think in their mind, I am on my way to heaven, and they are going to come before Christ and say, look, I prayed in your name, I prophesied in your name, I performed miracles in your name, I did all this in your name, and Matthew, this book, says, depart from me, I never knew you, you are a worker of iniquity. You are clothed in the wrong clothing. You are clothed in your own self-righteousness and your own religiousness, and you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have not put on, you have wrapped yourself up in Christ alone. You have thought that you can gain access to the wedding feast of the Lamb with your own old worldly garments. And they do nothing for you in heavenly realms. Why do you think when you get to Revelation, what does it say happens to everyone that arrives in heaven? You get a new set of clothes like that. Why? Because there's nothing of earth that's of any value. What are we clothed in? The bright white clothing that we are clothed in is the righteousness of Christ. And we physically receive in heaven what we spiritually received on earth when we gave ourselves entirely to God and said, Oh, I am completely unworthy and please clothe me in your righteousness that I may be counted worthy of your kingdom of your wedding feast. And it is when we wrap ourselves up in the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness, not our prayers, not our confessions, not our anything. We say, Christ is all. He is everything. And he is all to me. When that becomes our clothing, our garments, then we are rightly seated at the banqueting table. But I want you to notice, everyone in this passage was called. Some even made it into the banquet hall, but didn't get to eat any of the food. And oh, it would be such a sad thing for you to enter into churches and religious activities without the clothing of Christ and be in the right place but of the right wrong spirit and be unable to partake of what you can see in front of you. You are in the banquet hall and you can see the the spread of feasting that the king has laid out there. You see the joyfulness. You see it all. And then to have the king peer down upon you and say, What are you doing here? You're dressed in your own righteousness? You didn't think we had a dress code in heaven? Oh, we do. It is the righteousness of Christ. 
And look what happens to this one. It says, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And we're going to talk about the word chosen next week. I want you to understand what it means to be the called. It means that you have made the right response to the common, and I don't mean common by devalued, I mean universal, invitation by God to all men everywhere to repent and come to him. Not on your own merits, not in your own apparel, but in the apparel of Christ and Christ alone. This is what it means to be the called of Jesus Christ. When we come on the other side of that, having heard the invitation, having then responded properly, not in self-righteousness, but in complete abasement, that we come to God and say, Oh, Lord, I have nothing. Please, I am naked and ashamed before you. Please clothe me. And he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. On the other side of all of that, we stand and we can say, I'm the called of Jesus Christ. And this is the way Paul uses the term. On the perspective of the other side, not the process, but having looked back now as one of the called. Does that mean no one else was invited? No, everyone was invited. Does that mean that everyone that responded positively is a child of God? No, only those that respond as God requires. And there are positive responses that are insufficient for salvation. And when I encounter your friends and my friends, says, oh yeah, I believe in God, I cry. It is a positive response that's insufficient for salvation. The demons believe the same. I didn't ask you if you believed in God. I didn't ask you if you believed Jesus was God. That's not sufficient. Every demon knows Jesus is God. It is not enough. Don't let them get away with making that statement and concluding that they are seated at the wedding feast of the Lamb. They are in the banquet hall, but they are not properly clothed. For they are standing there thinking that on the basis of their own declaration of this information, that that is, qualifies them because they went to confessional, because they took communion, because they were baptized, that they are qualified. And none of that qualifies you. The only garment that is sufficient for the wedding are the royal wedding garments of the Lamb of God. And it is that that we wrap ourselves in. We present ourselves before God with none of ourself and all of Christ. If you have any other claim that you want to make on heaven, you are undressing yourself of the righteousness of Christ. You are no longer the called. You are the condemned. 
And so Judas uses this term, the called. Half affirming to them that yes, you have responded to the gospel invitation. But now let's be careful to make sure that it was the right positive response. You have made a positive response. Let's make sure it's the right one. And we're going to make a deliberate effort to try to get in there and make sure that it's genuine, that it cannot be robbed, ripped away, drifted away by false teachers. Because we have this that we claim. None of me, all of Christ, Christ alone. Him I serve. Him I follow. Him I trust in. He is my King, my Lord, my Savior, my friend, my love. He is my life. He defines me. This is a response to the invitation that dresses us for the feast. And this alone is the response we must have to be considered the called. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us that invited us and so many others, everyone, to a wondrous wedding feast, a wondrous relationship, a wondrous place. And Lord, our prayer is that we might be willing to serve you for that kingdom's sake with a message that is universal and yet a message that is very exclusive for it requires a singular response for it to benefit anyone. And so, Lord, help us to share it with all that we find and call them to a true positive response that dresses them in your righteousness. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.